There we go. Good. Morning. Hi. Nice to see you. Good. Uh, I'd like to preach to you this morning. And here I am. It's nice how those things work out. Um, so, uh, that's good. Um, just to say where we're going to go with this this morning, um, I'm going to, I'll give you the heads up first off. Um, going to be uh, preaching on anger, hopefully not preaching in anger. I did reassure uh, David Webster. Um, yes, no, I can do that as well. It's fine. Um, uh, so, um, and I know that will sound like an odd topic, but it's one that I've been uh, pondering a bit. Um, we all do get angry at times. Uh, if you're here this morning and think that you never get angry, uh, just come and chat to me afterwards. Uh, I'll leave it at that. I'm fairly sure you will get angry within a short space of time. Um, we wouldn't even have to discuss it, theoretically. I, I could annoy you very quickly. Um, but uh, to clarify how I'm going to preach on this, if I can just explain that my original intention when I started preparing this had been uh, to preach on the dual concepts of an angry God and whether we believe that and uh, how we perceive that uh, and also uh, human anger and how we handle that. Um, however, the more I prepared, the more I realized there was no way I could uh, do justice to those uh, two topics in the one sermon. Um, I probably can't do justice to one of those in one sermon, but I'm, that's, I'm going to leave it to that. So I've decided just to preach about uh, divine anger today, uh, partly because my general approach is that God is most important and so he should go first. Um, I may preach on human anger at a later date. Um, I realise that the concept of an angry God has been one that's been rather controversial well, over many years and that some people will find that concept uh, off-putting. Um, I hope that that won't be the case. Um, I'm not uh, bringing this to be deliberately controversial um, or just, you know, uh, definitely not to upset anyone. But I feel actually, um, when understood correctly, that this is a subject that will uh, deepen our understanding of God, um, will actually lead us great, into greater worship and relationship with him, and uh, that in actual fact this will be something that helps us more and more to understand his mercy. Um, so it will be a, will be a sermon that uh, I hope that by the end we will be uh, kind of blessed, encouraged and informed uh, or even if I just manage one of those three we'll call that a success um, but uh, if you happen to leave halfway through or whatever please do catch the end on your, on your podcast uh, because it might be one that if you leave after 20 minutes you might be left thinking what was that about? So bear with me till the end, okay? Um, there we go. And I'd like just to pray. Um, I think it was Emily that brought the passage about um, welcoming the Spirit of God to give us in wisdom and revelation that we might know him better. And um, that's really my heart this morning is that we just go away knowing God better. So I'm just going to pray that. Yeah, God, I pray that you'll help me uh, just to bring your word. Um, that you, Holy Spirit, will just rest on this time. I pray that you'll help all of us just to be receptive. God, we love you. Oh, God, you are so amazing. We will spend an eternity getting to know you better. Oh, God, you are so complex, so wonderful, so loving and diverse. And God, we pray that we can just get to grips with just a bit more of that this morning. Amen. Good. Okay. Uh, to start with, um, we will do a bit of interactive participation. 
Not in a weird way, don't worry, I saw your faces, it's okay. <laughs> you won't even have to talk to each other. We will do this um, via the, the amazing anonymity of social media. Oh, I say social media, it's a text message to an old Nokia, but that's as close as you're going to get to social media to me. We may one day get to the stage where you could tweet me, but probably not likely. Um, <laughs> No, we're going to do a text in. Um, I have done this before. Some of you have seen, uh, been here when we've done this. Uh, shortly, what I'm going to do is going to put up a presentation up here, which will have the number for this phone on it at the top. And I would like you to text in the stupidest thing that you have done when angry. Okay? Now, I will clarify this at this point. Any examples given will be used strictly anonymously. Okay? But if you happen to be a personal friend of mine, it will come through and I might know your number. So, uh, although if you are a personal friend of mine, I know some of the stupid things that you've done when angry anyway. Uh, yeah, no, we're not sharing. Don't worry. It's okay. Um, so I know some of you are thinking, yes, he hasn't just, he's just hasn't bothered to think up his own illustrations this morning. Partly that's true, but don't let it stop me, stop you bailing me out. And so we're going to put up the presentation now. And what I want you to do is text in the most, preferably briefly, the most stupid thing that you have done when angry. So if we can put up the uh, presentation with uh, that, off we go. I'm going to sit down for a few minutes to allow people just to re reply into this. <laughs> if you could avoid texting in active crimes, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> It puts me in a somewhat difficult ethical position. <laughs> okay, we'll draw it towards an end there. Thank you very much to all that have texted in. Um, and we'll share some of, I'll share a couple of those now. Um, and uh, I'll share a few of the ones later on. Um, so these are examples of things that uh, people in this church have done when angry. Okay. <laughs> We've got, <laughs> got one that said, oh, hold on, that looked interesting. <laughs> no, I can't even share that one. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Um, got one that, I mean, some that's quite creative, which has just said, I cleaned the house from top to the bottom. Um, don't say that. People will just want to make you angry. <laughs> um, we've got one that says... Uh, they, someone went angry, threw a sprinkler at a car. Um, someone bit a dog. Um, and someone else threw their husband's iPhone down the stairs. Um, we did have a few husband-related texts, I must admit. Uh, uh, so anyway, um, there we go. I'll, 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 I will somewhat desperately try and bring that back down. Uh, to being a bit more grounded. Um, and like I said, this morning we're looking at the concept of anger and we're going to look at the concept of divine anger. Uh, anger is defined as a strong feeling of annoyance, displeasure or hostility. A strong feeling of being upset or annoyed because of something wrong or bad. Um, it is also described as wrath, a feeling of great annoyance or antagonism as the result of some real or supposed grievance. Okay, and like I said today... I've chosen to pre this, preach this uh, not because I'm particularly, particularly annoyed at you, don't worry. Um, it's a common human emotion which we need to know how to handle, uh, but we also need to be clear in our thinking as to whether God is angry or not. So, if we could... Ah, good. Ah, Chris, we've got the other presentation up. Excellent. 
So, looking at the concept of divine anger, it's always good to look at God first, and then afterwards to consider ourselves. So, if I put up a statement, Trish, next slide. God is in a good mood. Okay, you often hear this said, God is in a good mood. Okay, how many of you roughly would agree with that? Hands up, we've got a few. Okay, quite a lot, excellent. Um, How many of you would say that it is always true? few but less okay but some okay excellent i'll be honest with you the statement used to annoy me a bit um partly because i'm uh, probably grumpy by nature but also it struck me as a little bit glib and rather simplistic um it seemed to portray god as some kind of uni-emotional santa claus kind of figure um and so i thought that the phrase could probably be more accurately stated as a christian god is always well disposed towards you which I freely admit is not as catchy. Um, (laughs) But it is accurate. (laughs) And that's generally what I go for in my catchphrases. They're less likely to be put on a T-shirt, but you can rely on them. Okay. Uh, If anyone does want to put that on a T-shirt, do feel free. Uh, I'm not sure if I'd wear it, but uh, do feel free to put that and use it. Um, It's okay. But anyway, God is in a good mood. Um, Can we say this when the Bible clearly describes God as experiencing a range of emotions. Isaiah 53 uh, describes Jesus as a man of sorrows. Uh, Zephaniah chapter 3 describes God as delighted and joyful, whereas Psalm 78 talks about him being grieved. So God very clearly experiences a range of emotions. Uh, But yet the more I've thought it through, the more I've thought actually, yes, we can always say that God is in a good mood. So if you were here and you were saying that, and you say that is always true, you are correct. It might not be in the way that you thought you were right, but you are correct, okay? Um, And it really does centre around how you define the term good mood, because in human terms, we would just tend to think of that as just being happy, okay? That's how that's commonly used, okay? But in actual fact, uh, we know that's not, strictly speaking, the case, and in actual fact, um, God is always good. We know this, okay? It says... The Lord is good and his love endures forever. In actual fact, God defines what is good. I don't know if you have ever tried to define the concept of good or goodness um, without reference to an external point, something that's very hard to define just within itself. It tends to be defined with reference to something external to that term, and our reference point would be God. God is always good. He cannot ever fail to be so. Okay? Therefore, if God is pleased, that is the good mood. Okay? If he is grieved, that is the right response. And if he is angry, that is a good mood. Okay? Because God is good. Okay? And this is partly because God's moods aren't experienced in the way that we would experience them. We tend to view things through the prism of human experience and human emotion, whereas in actual fact, God is different to that. God is outside of time and his character is unchanging. So partly, I guess, with the outside of time thing, that's how you could also say God is always in a good mood because he is outside of time as we reckon it. But in actual fact, his character is unchanging. He's always true to himself, and his moods reflect his perfect character. Okay? He doesn't have mood swings. He's never hormonal. Okay? He's never irrational. He never has to look back on something he did and go, yeah, I just wasn't feeling right that day. I shouldn't have done that. Okay? That is never the case with God. Okay? When he is angry, it isn't because he woke up feeling grumpy that morning or because he's just feeling a bit vindictive. God is always loving. We're comfortable with that concept, yes? God is always loving. He will never cease to be loving. That is eternal. 
That is an aspect of his character. He is unfailing in that. Okay? But God also has a just, righteous reaction towards sin, injustice, and the acts of the enemy. He's always going to be angry against those as they conflict with his perfect nature. Okay? And the term often given for this is actually called the wrath of God. And that's the term for God's holy, pure reaction against sin, evil, and injustice. The wrath of God. Uh, there's some debate on pronunciation. Some would say wrath. I'm really more of a wrath man myself. Um, if you want to use the alternative pronunciation, you're very welcome, although you are wrong. Okay. <laughs> So, just to define that again, wrath is a defined response to sin, disobedience, and injustice. It is not God losing his temper. It is not a form of divine road rage. Okay? It is a considered, consistent response. Uh, if I can quote from my new Bible dictionary, it says, Wrath is the permanent attitude of the holy and just God when confronted by sin and evil. It is a personal quality without which God would cease to be fully righteous and his love would degenerate into sentimentality. It is not wayward, fitful or spasmodic as human anger can be. It is a consistent element of his nature as is his love. So we're going to look at a biblical example of that. It will be the main passage that we look at. If you can, Trish, if you can put up Nahum chapter 1. If you've got a Bible or some form of electronic device with that on, or stone tablets, if you're truly retro, uh, then please turn to that. Nahum chapter 1. Okay. I'm just going to read this out. So, this is 1 to 8, and Trish, if you can just follow me through as we go. So, this is an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum, Nahum the Elkishite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the seas and dries it up, and makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good. So just divert at that point and say, the Lord is good. Whatever his move, whatever his response, the Lord is always good. So, the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him, but with an overwhelming flood... He will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. Strong language, isn't it? It, uh, it doesn't feature in many worship songs. Um, but, should, but, but should it? Okay. If we've said, God is perfect in all his aspects. Okay. He is worthy to be praised in all he is and all he does. Okay. We don't just praise him for his kindness and his grace and his love, and then just tolerate him because he's uh, tolerate his wrath because he's all right in other ways. Okay? Don't say, God, we love you because you are merciful, you are gracious, and we'll put up with you being a bit wrathful every now and then because of the other things. That's not actually how we handle that. Um, he is worthy to be praised for all of his character. And I have wondered if we could just skip back to verse two, whether you could actually set this to a worship song. 
Um, if you could put this to the tune of The Lord is Gracious and Compassionate. If you're familiar with that song. The Lord is gracious and compassionate. So this would go something like. The Lord is jealous and avenging. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. And that right there is why they don't let me sing. Um, or write songs. <laughs> or lead worship. <laughs> um, but you could do. Because actual fact, God is worthy to be praised. I did once use it in a home group activity. Um, this was at a previous church. And it was one of these activities where everyone was given a piece of paper and you had to write down an aspect of God's character and then you put it on the floor and then uh, you went round them like stepping stones um, and praised God for that aspect of his character. And so everyone was doing the rather traditional things of you know, loving, generous, mighty, gracious. And on my piece of paper, I uh, rather cheekily or gleefully uh, wrote jealous and avenging and put it on the floor just to see how that would go. Um, <laughs> and you could just see my home group leader looking at me going awkward smart ass um, <laughs> which is partly true uh, but an actual fact once people actually actually thought about that seriously and considered what actually uh, the wrath of God encompasses and the fact that it encompasses his justice in actual fact it is something that we can uh, praise him for so in this passage is God writes to be angry in this situation. Well, this passage is speaking against Nineveh, as you see in verse 1. And uh, Nineveh really symbolizes the Assyrian Empire. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And the book of Nahum, was, we think, was written somewhere between 663 BC and 612 BC because Nineveh was destroyed in 612 BC. And it foretells... Stop texting me, I'm done. That's good. <laughs> and... And uh, Nahum foretells the fall of Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire. By the time Nahum had been written, um, Assyria had already conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, um, had deported a lot of its people and had destroyed its capital city of Samaria. And this was an incredibly brutal world power who besieged, uh, captured, tortured and deported entire people groups. Okay? And their rulers ordered truly, truly horrific torture on captives. And I will read you an example of a historical record of the actions of the Assyrians. Um, it's actually taken from Mark Henley's book. Mark, are you here? Wave at me if you... There's Mark. Everyone, that's Mark back there. Uh, is the good chap with the beard. And uh, this is from Mark's tour of the British Museum. Mark does a great tour of biblical history uh, around the British Museum, looking at the artefacts and the historical records that uh, run alongside the Old Testament and if you've got a, you know, a passion or an interest to be able to set the Old Testament in its historical and cultural context, then I can't recommend this tour highly enough and go and see Mark. Um, uh, you've also got website kingdomcollision.com, I believe, so just look him up on that. If you don't have a passion to do that, there's something wrong with you, and go and see Mark anyway, okay, because you need to do this tour. But this is from Mark's tour book, okay, and... Just to warn you in advance, because I know that, uh, sorry, uh, depends, some of you might not, uh, or might be of a more sensitive nature, if you want to, if this is makes grim reading, um, and I don't do it just to shock, but it's to put this passage in its context, so if you want to cover your ears, please do now. 
Okay? This is a quote from, uh, excuse the pronunciation, Ashurnasipal II, who was one of the kings of Assyria. So this is how he treated his captives. He says, I built a pillar over against the city gate, and I flayed all the chief men who had revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skins. Some I walled up within the pillar, some I impaled upon the pillar on stakes, and others I bound round the pillar, and I cut off the limbs of the officers who had rebelled. From some I cut off their hands, and from others I cut off their noses, their ears, and their fingers. Of many I put out their eyes. Their young men and maidens I burned in the fire. The rest of them I consumed with thirst in the desert of the Euphrates. Like I said, it makes grim reading. It makes games of Game of Thrones sound pretty tame, to be honest. Um, and I don't do that just to shock you or just to jolt you awake mid-sermon, um, but actually just to put that previous passage in its historical context. Okay? That is an atrocity that's described. Okay? How could a God, a just, perfect God, not respond with anger and disgust towards that, towards what we've just read? Okay? It would be very disturbing if he didn't. Okay? If God just sat back and said, well, we'll let that one slide. Okay? You Assyrians, what are you like? Such cheeky chappies, I know you mean well. No, no, what is described there is an atrocity, okay? And God is angry in response to this, and anger is the good mood for him to have, so to speak, in this situation. He is wrathful. His wrath is his perfect response against injustice and sin. And there you have the atrocities and the acts of the enemy that come up against the perfect God, and it meets with his wrath. So, is it right for him to be angry in that situation? I would say yes. Um, And I'd like to kind of briefly illustrate the concept of if it's right to be angry. Um, I'll illustrate this with some early 90s cartoon trivia, uh, just to to slightly change the pace of this a bit. If I put up the next slide, can anyone tell me who this is? Bucky O'Hare. Thank you to the man over there. This was an intergalactic space rabbit. Okay. now, it, did say, it said in my preaching manual, if you're going to preach on the wrath of God, you have to have an intergalactic space rabbit. It just mixes it up. It's good. So, um, but for bonus points, now, we'll be very impressed if anyone gets this. If we put up the next slide, this is Bucky O'Hare's spaceship. Can anyone remember the name? Who was that? Who was that? Yes. It, <laughs> give the man a round of applause. <laughs> say that louder for us, please. Yes, there we go. Bucky O'Hare's spaceship was called the Righteous Indignation. It's a brilliant name for a spaceship. And if I ever own a boat, that is what I'm calling it. (laughs) I mean, I don't like sailing, but I really want to own a boat for two reasons. One is uh, to give me a legitimate excuse to listen to the Radio 4 shipping forecast. And the other is so that I may name the boat the Righteous Indignation. It just rolls off the tongue very nicely. Um, But the point I am making... Sorry, we can skip off the spaceship slide now and go to the next one. It's blank, I think. Um, The point I'm making is that it is possible to be angry at sin and injustice in a righteous way. Okay? And God's wrath, his opposition to evil, is always righteous. And hence it says in verse 2 of Nahum, it says, The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. But it also says... He maintains his wrath against his enemies. Okay? Maintains implies a conscious decision okay, to continue in this state. And like I said earlier, 
God is persistently opposed to evil. He doesn't just occasionally fly off the handle, lose his rag, and wipe out a civilization. Okay? It is not an irrational or inconsidered response. God maintains a steady state of wrath, of opposition against injustice, oppression, and cruelty. And the Hebrew word used here for maintains is nater. Excuse the pronunciation if it's not right. But it means to keep or maintain. But it is also used in the sense to keep guard. Okay? God maintains his wrath. Okay? It is part of his character. He keeps guard. He is always watchful. He is always against sin, injustice, and oppression. Okay? And the wrath of God is not something that's imposed on him by others. It's not as if other people make him angry and then he acts out of character. Okay? He is in control of it. It reflects his perfect nature. Okay? Like I said earlier, we would tend to see this through the prism of human anger, of someone making us angry and then us losing control, acting out of character or doing something that we would later regret. And you hear that, don't you? I'm so angry. Look what you made me do. I punched a sheep in the face. (laughs) Or something that you're later going to regret. Or a couple of other examples that we've got here. Um... So we have another husband-related one. Someone apparently went angry through rotten fruit at their husband. Um, We have someone that smashed a light bulb in their ear when angry. Um, That's creative. Love to hear the rest of that story. And then someone that threw a cat into a bollard, um, which is worrying, I know. So those, I think we can all agree, are actions that when angry we would later consider to be unrighteous. Okay? And just to clarify... Um, human anger is not always wrong. Okay? There are times when we come up against injustice, when actually the right response is no, is righteous indignation, is to be righteously angry because actually we are seeing the acts of the enemy. Okay? And you see that more and more, especially when that is family, when that is the church, when we see unjust threats and attacks on that, the correct response is, actual fact, to be indignant and to be angry. And that is not wrong. It says in James, it says, in your anger, do not sin. It doesn't say your anger is sinful, but what it does imply in that passage is that in a state of anger, it is probably easier for you to sin than it would be otherwise. That's the precaution there. Um, So that's my brief just caveat on that. But God's anger doesn't make him spiteful or unloving. It just means that he is just and true. Okay? But what, to what extent does his anger extend? Okay. We're all probably okay with the idea of God expressing his righteous anger towards Assyria. Most of us heard the horrific descriptions of what Assyria did to people and went, yeah, right to be angry there. God's wrath is right to be expressed against that. Okay. But he is also opposed to every other evil, and that's something that we just have to know. Okay. So... Things that we would consider lesser crimes, and they probably are lesser crimes than the Assyrians. But you know, someone gets a friend of yours gets mugged, their handbag stolen, or their phone stolen. Most of us would actually have an angry response to that because that is an injustice against a loved one. Okay, and God's wrath extends to that. It extends to shoplifting, okay, to gossip, to being unkind, to hateful thoughts. Okay, God is steadfast and passionately against all evil. Because he's so in love with his creation. When, you're so, when you've created a people that you are so in love with, things that come as a threat to that, that are going to 
uh, hurt their happiness, their health, their ongoing, he is going to be angry against that. Okay? And he won't allow injustice to go unpunished. And I know sometimes it will seem like that, because in this life, sometimes people do seem to get away with things. But God is just, and his wrath is constant there, and one day those things will be reckoned with. Okay. So God's anger extends to all injustice, all sin, and all wrongdoing. So, coming on to how we then apply that to ourselves, I can ask a question. David Webster, would you mind if I ask you a question? Yeah. It's all right. It's not the, did you send this text? (laughs) Um, Is God angry with you? David Webster, is God angry with you? No. No. Good. Okay. And that's that's the only question I wanted. I'd say it was a simple question. Is God angry with you? As a Christian, is God angry with you? Well, no. And I'll come on to explain that. Because in actual, if you turn actually to John 3, verse 36. Obviously, John 3 contains very famous John 3, 16, which is God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Um, but it's the verse at the end of the chapter that I just want to look at. Because in actual fact, God sent Christ to, to provide a way out from his wrath. Okay? Um, his love actually extends past that. So John 3:36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That's the promise. You don't have to bear the wrath of God. But it does say, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. And uh, often the wrath of God is portrayed as an Old Testament concept, and we hear this idea, Old Testament God, God of wrath, New Testament God, God of love. And um, and we know that that's not true because God is constant. Um, It is important to bear actual fact uh, the way he deals with things differs from Old Covenant to New Covenant because in actual fact it's all mediated through the sacrifice of his son. But Jesus talks openly about the wrath of God. And in our natural state, that is what we are subject to. And it's important to be clear on that. But Jesus came to declare that he is providing a way out, a way to eternal life. Just turn, this will be the final passage. If you're just going to take two passages, this is Ephesians 2, uh, verse, uh, second half of 3 through to 5. If you're just going to take two passages away from today, take the Nahum one and take this one in Ephesians and look at those in parallel. Both speak of the wrath of God, but in actual fact they will put that in a brilliant picture for you. Um, It says... Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our sins. It is by grace you have been saved. Our natural state was as an object of wrath. I'm not saying that you have committed the crimes of the Assyrians. I hope not many of you have. But... All of us have done some things that are wrong and as such fall short of God's perfect standard. This is what we know from Scripture. But as Christians, the wrath of God isn't a concept that makes us live in fear because God's anger at sin has been met and punished in the person of Jesus. Okay? His anger, his wrath, has been poured out on his son at the cross. And he didn't leave any over for you. Okay? This is really important. Okay? 
Scripture does not say, Jesus bore the partial wrath of God. Okay, It does not say, Jesus bore some of the wrath of God, the rest of it you've got to work out between you and the Father. No, he doesn't say that. The full wrath of God was poured out against Christ. Okay, And he, Christ took it all. And there is a term for this, which is propitiation, which means to turn away the anger of God. Propitiation means... Christ's sacrifice turned the anger of God away from you towards Jesus. Okay? God is not angry at you. This is good news. Okay? By allowing Jesus to take your place, you are declared innocent. And, uh, and this is partly, I was saying, I hope that this will bless you in time this morning. It's partly so that we can clarify our concept of the wrath of God, of him just not losing his temper. But also, to put that in the context of this is how we understand mercy. This is how we understand the amazing mercy of God because we know what we are spared from. We know what we are saved from. We know what we deserved and we know what God's completely righteous attitude to that was. Okay? But God spares us that. Okay? The concept of the wrath of God allows us to understand that his mercy is just that more incredible. And God, that is God's heart. He says, let mercy triumph over judgment. Okay? He is not wanting anyone to be perished. He is not wanting any of us to be subject to his wrath. He is wanting that to be poured out on his son so that we go free. That is his desire. Okay? So the cross of Christ is the perfect, it's the ultimate example of the wrath of God, but it is also the perfect example of his love. Okay? That is where these two meet at the cross. Okay? And that is how we should view that always through the, in the shadow of the cross. His wrath was poured out in perfect justice, but his love was poured out in amazing mercy. Okay? And the same wrath that God poured out against the Assyrian Empire was poured out against his son. The divine wrath for every evil action in history was put on Jesus, and Jesus suffered the punishment for all of that for the joy set before him, which is you. To you guys and us. Okay? And this is why knowing more about the wrath of God actually makes me ever more grateful and it makes me fall at the feet of my Saviour. Okay? And it makes me worship Him with greater sincerity and love. Okay? Because at the cross, Jesus bore the full wrath of God. And this was a truly terrible thing. Okay? The judgment upon Him was so great that creation itself was shaken. You know, the sky was darkened and the earth was split because that is the full horror of God at every evil action. That is the full wrath of God poured out on one man who bore that for us. Okay? And knowing the degree of God's wrath against sin, knowing that he took that upon himself in the person of his son Jesus, makes me all the more thankful. And, uh, and that's actually why the original version of the Lord is gracious and compassionate is better than my version, I will admit it, because actually, in fact, it says, as far as the east is from the west, that's how far God has taken our sins from us. The wrath of God has been removed from you, pers- you know, forever, as far as it can go. It can never touch you. It is as far as the east is from the west. That is gone. And, uh, and so that's why I wanted to talk to you about anger this morning, because in actual fact, it leads us more into a deeper understanding of God's love. Okay? God is longing to pour out mercy, to turn his wrath away from people via the sacrifice that he made. And so, 
I'd like to uh, finish my sermon on anger, actually, with a quote that leads more actually about love. Uh, This is a quote from Spurgeon.org. I don't think he actually wrote the website, but I think it was inspired by him. Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, he was very ahead of his time. Thanks, Tim. It's good thinking. (laughs) It was in the prophetic. (laughs) He knew to put .com after his thing. Anyway, this is from Spurgeon.org. This is how I'd like to actually to finish um, about the varying, uh, the, when we say the moods of God, like we say earlier, just to sum up, um, to sum up what we've said. God's moods are, are not irrational or you know, as variable or fickle as we can understand humans' moods to be. They are aspects of his permanent, perfect character. Okay? So his wrath is never him losing his temper. He is constant in that. His mercy shows the way through that, and it's a demonstration of his amazing love. So this is the quote I'll finish with. It says, His wrath against sin is real and powerful. His compassion for sinners is also sincere and indefatigable. His mercies are truly over all his works, and above all, his eternal love for his people is more real, more powerful, and more enduring than any earthly emotion that ever bore the label love. Unlike human love, God's love is unfailing, unwavering, and eternally constant. Bless you guys. Thanks.